Good morning, Areola Bible Church. I'm excited to again be able to preach to you this morning. I hope you all have had a good week and are having a great Sunday. And I'm excited for this passage today. This is a, a neat little story here in Matthew that we'll get to look at. Uh, before we get to that, if you would, join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the people of Areola Bible Church, uh, the people that make up that body of believers that love you and that love your word. Lord, I thank you that uh, technology is what it is and that during this time where we can't meet in person that uh, we're still able to uh, worship together and to learn together, Lord. Pray you bless this time, bless me as I uh, bring forth some truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so do you remember how I started last week? I asked you a question. I asked you to think of a kind of person that really gets under your skin. Now, I had a plan in doing that. Today, I would like to, you to think of the kind of person that, that draws you in, that, that pulls you to them. Someone you truly enjoy being with. Hopefully, if you're married, your spouse is one of those people. And what was it about your husband or wife that originally drew you to them, that wanted, made you want to spend time with them and to, to marry them. You know, my wife is the kind of person that really cares for others. Her heart bleeds for others, and she's passionate about the people she cares for. When we first got to know one another, we were both working as funeral directors, and that caring heart of hers was on display as she served the families that came into the funeral home. And as we started dating and got married, I mean, it felt really good to have someone that cares for me the way she does, to have her in my corner. And it's still a wonderful blessing as we go through life together that I know that she cares for me, and I get to see the way she cares for our children, and she raises them with that same passion that she has bestowed upon me. But a spouse is easy, and I could go on and on about my wife, but what about other people? What about your friends? What is it about the people that you choose on a day-to-day -day basis to spend time with? Have you ever thought, stopped and think, thought about that? About what it is? As I was thinking about this, a single person came to mind. Is a gentleman who's older than I am. He's retired, and I'm working we don't really have any common hobbies or interests, but I love to spend time with him. You see, he is an encourager. He always has a word or a prayer to build others up. Spending time with him is always uplifting. And there's a huge contrast between that and the type of person I described last week that really got under my skin. The type of person who was an agitator, who liked to stir up trouble or tear people down. When I see that my friend who's an encourager, I think he draws me in with what comes out of his heart. Last week we looked at the importance of a pure heart and what that means to God. But I think that that also is something that we can see in each other and it is attractive to us. As we look at contrast, I want to contrast the pride of the Pharisees that we saw last week with the humility of the Canaanite woman in our story today. This woman exemplified humility. At only eight verses long, this is a relatively short narrative. 
But it's important. It's important for what it foreshadows, and it's important for what it teaches us about faith. In this passage, Matthew 15, 21-28, about the faith of a Canaanite woman, we will see that God is impartial in rewarding faith. God is impartial in rewarding faith. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 15 as I begin reading in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, began, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So this is a story of a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus. And she comes to him with a deep burden. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 where we will see the context of where we are at now and the request that this woman brings. Again, verse 21 says that Jesus went away from there. You remember he was in Genesaret. He was still in the, the region of the Sea of Galilee. He had been ministering there for some time. And he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now I think as the original audience read this, this is again something that would have stood out to them. This is the only time in Jesus' ministry where he leaves Jewish territory. Tyre and Sidon were north and west from the Sea of Galilee on the Mediterranean Sea. And again, this was not a Jewish area. When it says that Jesus withdrew there, you can almost view that as like a retreating. And this is something that we've seen Jesus do several times. Two other times just in the last few chapters. In chapter 12, he withdrew after his run-in with the Pharisees. And it was at that point that they began to plot against him. And he withdrew. He withdrew again in chapter 14 about hearing about the beheading of John the Baptist. And now, after another run-in with the Pharisees, and again, this time it was Pharisees from Jerusalem, Jesus is again withdrawing. He retreats. It's important here that, you know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When we look at Jesus and his life, he was full-time on mission to fulfill the will of God. And as we see him leave a place and go to another, it is never an accident. He always has a purpose for where he's going and the time that he goes. And as he withdraws here, we see that he is on mission to fulfill what God's will is, his plan, in the time and the place that that was to be fulfilled. So as we see him leave here, we know that it's with a purpose. So again, we get to the verse 22 where we hear the request from the Canaanite woman. And a Canaanite woman came out of that region 
or from that region, came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord. Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, the New King James is actually a little bit more word-for-word literal in verse 22. It begins verse 22 with, And behold, a woman of Canaan. When I first started studying Greek, I really loved the word that's translated behold there. It was I do. It literally means behold or look and see. Even for a beginning Greek student, it was an easy word to recognize and it always gave you sort of a clue as to what was coming. This was something important. This was something that stuck out. So as this sentence begins, or Matthew here is saying, behold, look at this. It's a Canaanite woman coming to Jesus. He's, he's really stressing here that you need to pay attention. It's not only a Gentile, it is a Canaanite. The ancient enemies of God's people. And she has come to throw herself upon the mercy of Jesus. For her daughter, her daughter who was cruelly demon-possessed. Is there anything we wouldn't do for our children? To see them suffer or be in pain is one of the, the worst things that we can go through as a parent. Now, last Sunday during the Zoom meeting, one of you asked me to give a description of each one of my girls or to tell you something about each one of them. And my head began to whirl because where do you begin talking about your children? When I look at each of them, I see them as a gift from God. A life that He has entrusted to my wife and I to raise and as parents to try to give them an example of Himself. The loving Heavenly Father. Even in this sinful world, we try to be that example. So it can also be said that we view our children as our future. Now while I have the glorious hope of eternal life, I also view my children as something that connects me to the future. Something I'm leaving behind. Psalm 127 describes children as a full quiver of arrows for a warrior. And I look at that and I think, you know, I am sharpening them. I am preparing them to go out into the world, to someday be loosed upon the world and hopefully touch the world for God with the things that I have raised them with. It's my way of touching the future through them. But for those with no eternal hope, their children are the only future they have. If you have ever had an extremely ill child or had to experience the loss of a child, my heart truly goes out to you. In all my years working at the funeral home, constantly being surrounded by death, the families I most vividly remember were those that had to go through the loss of a child. In those cases, the parents, almost without exception, carried a look of suffering as if they were grieving the loss of their future as they mourned their child. And as I think of that, as I think of that look, that's the desperation I see when this woman comes to Jesus. That she would do anything for her daughter to keep her from death, to bring back her little girl who is going through this cruel demonic possession. Let's look at the disciples' response in verse 23. Well, first we see that Jesus did not answer, but He did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. So I read this, I begin to wonder, and I've wondered this before, that as Matthew was writing this story, and the Holy Spirit was illuminating it in his mind, as he was being inspired to retell this story, what would he have thought as he recalled his reaction to this woman? The disciples are confronted with this desperate woman seeking the power of Jesus for her daughter, and they are only concerned with themselves. Jesus, could you please get rid of her so she would stop yelling at us? You know, I know as I look back over my life with imperfect recollection, I often cringe at my actions or my reactions to the needs of others. How Matthew must have felt as the Holy Spirit illuminated his reaction to this woman. Just get rid of her. But Jesus didn't get rid of her. He's going to use her need and her faith to further illustrate the implications of his earthly ministry. Let's read his response now in verse 24. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was not lying here. He was incapable of lying. We know that his coming to earth was at the behest of the Father and that was driven by love for the world. But Jesus' earthly ministry was to the Jewish people. He was ministering to them to prove that he was their Messiah. He was there to offer them the awaited kingdom. But they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah and the wrong kind of kingdom. And they would reject him and crucify him. His subsequent death, burial, and resurrection would be for the whole world. But at that moment, he was ministering and showing himself to the Jewish people. Continues in verse 25, it says, But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And you can hear the desperation of this mother. What she must have been going through as she begs to Jesus for mercy. As I see this, she's, there's no idea of how long she's been shouting. Obviously long enough for the disciples to come to Jesus and complain about it. And he hasn't responded to her. It said he didn't say a word to her. But, but here he does. He, he tells her that he's only come to the lost house of Israel. This isn't what she wanted to hear, but she seizes the moment. She has his attention and she throws herself before him. Jesus responds again in verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Abigail, our one-year-old, has a really bad habit. As she's sitting in her high chair, if the dog is anywhere nearby, she takes great joy in leaning out as far as she can, and she very dramatically drops her food. And then she, with a big smile on her face, she sits there and she watches as our dog rushes in and eats up the food, and then she sits there with this look on her eyes like, are you going to give me more? And Abigail just thinks that's so funny, and she'll continue to, to feed her. And it, 
It drives me crazy because food is expensive. And it takes me time to prepare. And after I do and I give it to her and I know she's hungry, I look over and she's feeding the dog with the food I have given her. What a waste. And this is what Jesus likens ministering to the Gentiles as. is feeding children's food to the dogs. At least at this time in his ministry. I believe that Jesus is using this truth of who he is on earth to minister to to test her, which will highlight her faith for the disciples. In verse 27, she responds to Jesus and says, But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What an answer! You ever had someone, maybe a child, say something profound that you just didn't see coming? One of those jaw-dropping or head-shaking moments, like, you know, what did you just say? Something else you should know about me, I love movies. Um, In the movie Forrest Gump, there's a scene where he is in boot camp for the army, and this drill instructor gets right in his face, and he says, Gump, what is your sole purpose in this army? You know, Forrest looks at him with a sort of dumbfounded look. He goes, to do whatever you tell me to, drill sergeant. And the drill sergeant is just blown away. You know, I don't remember exactly what he says. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think he might use some colorful language there. But his basic response is, Gump, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. You must be a genius. But Forrest wasn't a genius. In fact, he was quite simple. To him, there was no grand plan for the future, no purpose greater than what was right in front of him. He replied with a simple truth, something obvious, but the truth came across as being profound. This Canaanite woman takes a simple truth of life to show Jesus that while we don't starve our children to feed the dogs, The dogs still eat. She knew that from the abundance of Jesus' table, there must be something for even her, a Canaanite woman. Jesus responds again in verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And at once her daughter was healed. No matter how brilliant or profound her response was, nothing caught Jesus by surprise. I think we should look at her response and say, there's truth in there. And it should surprise us. I think as Matthew wrote this, that was sort of the intended point. But for Jesus, he knew her heart. He knew her faith. He knew that she would respond correctly. But he tested her to make an example. And by testing her, he highlighted her faith. He made her faith abundantly clear to his disciples and to all those who witnessed this exchange. I want to look at something else that Jesus said there. He said to her, your faith is great. I think that we can read statements like that And maybe sort of assume that there's varying degrees of faith. In response to that, one that I admit 
I have had myself that thought. I want to remind you and myself what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing that something is true. Being convicted of it. Faith is an either-or thing. You have assurance of something or you don't. And hoping is not faith. If you believe something, you can't believe it more. I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I wasn't there to witness it, but I've read about it in history books. It seems to be a well-accepted fact by the entire world, and so I believe that. I can't believe it more than I already do. To broaden our perspective on this idea of varying levels of faith, I want to jump back to the story of Jesus walking on water. I didn't have a chance to cover this there, and it fits well here because you get both sides. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter began to sink? And Jesus pulled him up and he said, you have little faith. Was Jesus telling Peter that he only believed a little bit? I think these two, ideas, these two passages give us an idea that we can understand uh, something about faith, that there are two different types of faith we're looking at here. Faith that grants eternal life and faith to live by. First, faith that grants eternal life. I mean, we should not think of faith that leads to eternal life as having varying degrees because to do that implies that we could worry about whether or not our faith was genuine. Was my faith good enough? If I'm struggling in my Christian walk, I shouldn't have to look back to the moment I believed and say, did I do it well enough? Do I need to believe stronger? Was there something I did wrong? The moment that you move from hoping to being assured that Jesus is your Savior, you have eternal life. There cannot be varying degrees of assurance. I think some of this confusion comes from the way we can use the word believe today in our language. You can mix up believe and hope. I can say that I believe the Broncos have found their new franchise quarterback in Drew Locke. But that's nothing more than a hopeful expectation based on limited evidence. I don't really believe that because I can't know that it's true. That is not having assurance. We need to make sure that we are clear in our own minds and as we tell others what it means to believe. To know that something is true. Now, On the flip side of this, when you believed in Jesus, when you have assurance that he will give you eternal life, that he has promised you. How do you live a life of faith? Now, I would suggest here that while I still don't think that there are varying degrees of faith, there can be varying degrees of knowledge. I cannot be assured of something I don't know. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this regarding Peter's little faith. It says that worrying shows that one has little faith and what God can do. Our faith can grow not in quality, but in quantity. As we learn more and we are able to believe more about who God is and what He wants to do through our lives, 
our faith will grow in that quantity. Peter sunk in the storm because he had a limited view of exactly who Jesus was. He took his eyes off of Jesus because he failed to recognize him for who he was. If we do not pursue an intimate knowledge of God through studying his word, we will not have the substance or the foundation to build that faith upon. Faith that will impact and change our life. So if we can't have varying degrees of faith, what was so extraordinary about the Canaanites who in faith? Why did Jesus say that she had great faith? I think that for being an outsider, a Canaanite, she believed a lot. She believed that Jesus could heal her daughter. She called him the son of David, showing faith in him as the promised Messiah of Israel. And she believed that his purposes on this earth were greater than to just minister to Israel. She knew that Jesus, that who Jesus was, was going to go beyond Israel. And that even as a Canaanite, a Gentile, a dog, that his blessings were for her as well. She had great faith. Let's look at the purpose of this story. Why is this story included in Matthew's account? There are so many healing stories, you know, why, why include this one? As I said earlier, I see this story foreshadowing what is to come. Last week we saw Jesus highlighting the purity of one's heart over what was put into one's mouth. What the Jewish people held sacred, what they thought set them apart, Jesus said didn't really matter to God. It was the purity of their heart. And that story begins a sequence here in Matthew 15 that shows the blessings of Jesus to the Gentiles. We have that story, and then we have this story about him healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman, a Gentile. Later in this chapter, Jesus will feed a crowd of Gentiles just as he fed a crowd of Jewish people in chapter 14. Showing that he is the bread of life to the whole world. So this story is an important link. I can imagine how Matthew's original audience, both the believing and the unbelieving Jews, how would they have first read this account? I think that they probably would have been shocked that Jesus left the Jewish territory, that they went to Tyre and Sidon. You know, what good could that accomplish? Why would you leave there? You're the the promised king. You are God and we are God's people. Why are you going there? I can also see them being in full agreement with the disciples who are saying, just get rid of her. Get her out of here. They probably thought there's nothing worse than being yelled at by a loud Canaanite woman. But Jesus was beginning to show His disciples the full impact of His ministry. And as those readers read this, they would have started to understand. Jesus didn't just heal her daughter and send her away, leaving those who were there to wonder for themselves about her faith, leaving the readers of this passage to wonder about her faith and what that meant. Through the testing, He brings her faith out into the open and then He celebrates it. In turn, the original audience could begin to see God's purposes for Jesus' mission beginning to unfold. To try and really understand this, 
uh, how it would have been received. I want to again go forward to Acts. Last week, we went to Acts 10 when we were looking at clean and unclean food and Peter's reaction to the sheet that came down out of heaven with all the unclean animals in it. Immediately following that, the Holy Spirit comes to Peter and he says, go downstairs, there's three men coming. I want you to go with them and don't ask any questions. Well, those three men were Gentiles. And several days later, in Acts 10.34, Peter's gone to the house of Cornelius. They took him there. And in verse 34, it says, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. I certainly understand now. Isn't that amazing? All this time later, Peter gets it. That God is not one to show partiality. Jesus did not show partiality to this Canaanite woman. He healed her daughter. He rewarded her faith. After sharing the Gospel there in Acts 10, the Gentiles believe and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Verse 45 says that all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I think as we see that, as we see even Peter finally getting it in Acts 10, that for the readers of Matthew's account who had seen this happen, seen the Gentiles receive the Gospel, that stories like this, this link in Matthew's account, this foreshadowing story, would help them to understand why the Gentiles have been brought in. That Jesus was there for the whole world. So I have three points today as we conclude this sermon. And again, I want to point out, as I did in the beginning, the stark contrast between this woman and the Pharisees from the beginning of the chapter the pride that they had and the humility that she showed, throwing herself before Jesus. There's also a contrast between her great faith and the little faith that the disciples continually showed. So as we think about in that context, our first point is to bring your request to God in humility. This woman comes in faith showing humility. Lowering herself in front of this Jewish man to the point of begging for help for her daughter. She says nothing of who she is or why she deserves help. She only elevates Jesus by calling Him the Son of David. How often do we only come to God when we need something? Maybe feeling entitlement as His child. I know I can be guilty of that. You know, there are times often throughout the day where I may see a need or feel a need or think of someone, and I I quickly go to God and I I say, you know, I need your help. I pray for a certain thing quickly, but I think that's okay, but I think that we need to make sure we're taking the time to pray to God and to praise Him for who He is, to pray for His will to be done, to pray for the things that bring Him glory. I challenge you to continually humble yourself before God. 
to be in awe of who He is and be in awe of His love. And that because of your faith in Him and what Jesus has done for you, that He longs to hear from you as His child. That is an awesome thing. The Creator God Almighty wants to hear my concerns. Keep that perspective and there is no other way to come before Him than with humility. Our second point is that faith rooted in humility endures testing. Jesus tested this woman's faith. He knew her heart and her faith. And I'm sure because who He is, He felt the same compassion towards her that we see Him show over and over to the Jewish people. Looking at this story in its context, we can see why Jesus tested her. But for her in that moment, that could not have been an easy thing. In her desperation, in her thinking of her daughter, to have her faith tested in front of who knows how many people, it would have been easy for her to stand up and walk away. In my senior year of high school, there was a student who transferred to our school and Right before the school year started, our, our football practices started, and he came out for the team. And he was obviously a gifted athlete. He would have been a, a great player on our team. But as that week of two-a-day practices went on, uh, it was obvious that the coaches and many of the players were giving him a much harder time than everyone else. And he didn't take it well. Halfway through that week, he lost it. He threw his helmet and took his pads off and he walked off the field. He quit. If he had held on another couple days, he would have ingratiated himself and made himself a part of that team. He would have been a valuable player. But he was too proud to endure the testing. He thought he was too good to have someone question him. In our Christian walks, we will be tested and we know this. I love how James 1 tells us that the testing of our faith, in essence, says it makes us perfect, complete. We need to strive to have the humility of this Canaanite woman. When we are tested, we cannot think too highly of ourselves. I mean, think about this. Jesus called her a dog to her face, and yet she was undeterred, humble in her standing as a Canaanite woman. We should all be humble in the presence of a holy God. And that humility will enable us to endure through the trials we face. Number three, our last point, is that humility is the basis for our faith. This is an important thing to remember, and the faith of this woman shows it beautifully. That when we come to God in faith, when we are believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life, We're doing so in humility. In that belief, there is an admission that we need Jesus. That we are a sinner, that we are separated from God, and that there's nothing that we can do in our own power to earn our way back to Him. We need to come to Him in humility, acknowledging our need for His grace as we believe in Jesus. As we live the Christian life, it is important to keep that in mind, to never forget that your eternal destiny is based solely on what Christ has done for you, and that His grace was only accessed through faith in Him. To take your eyes off that, to begin viewing yourself as part of the solution, to have pride in yourself, 
That leads to the way of the Pharisees. God wants us to live a life that is dependent upon Him. A life of humility. Never forgetting His grace, His undeserved favor. I've stressed the humility aspect of this story today because as we are striving to live that humble life, that, that life that is pleasing to God, that shows the world around us our dependence on Him and the joy that comes from that, and we're doing it in a culture that mocks humility. It hates it. It hates the idea of grace, of needing something from someone else that you don't deserve. Our culture is a culture of pride and sin. And I urge you to reject that culture and do not let it infiltrate your faith. If that pride does reach your faith, it will change how you view yourself, how you view God, even how you share the gospel with others. Continually praise God for His grace and keep it right in front of you the center of your thoughts. Let the knowledge of what Jesus did for you humble your hearts. I want to leave you with James 4.6. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Have a pure heart that in humility is reliant upon God and live in His grace who without partiality has saved us. Would you... Conclude with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for this story. I thank You that uh, You did send Your Son for the whole world. I thank You that He died and rose again and that through belief in Him that we have eternal life and that enables us to live a life that is pleasing to You, that we can grow in our faith as we learn more about You. And we can do that together as a church and that as we learn, we can glorify You more and Your name will be lifted up. Lord, I pray that you be with the people of Ariel Bible Church as they go into this week, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to bring God's word. And again, I hope you have a great week. Bye now.